Thank you, Howard. Thank you, Joel. Um, Joel Chernoff uh, uh, has a table out there. He's been a recording artist in Christian music for three decades, a long time. I got my first album of his when I was in high school back in the 1970s, the mid-70s. And uh, uh, he was one of the first trailblazers uh, on the charts and everything else in Christian music, recorded under the name Lamb at the time, but has albums on, well, the CDs, I guess now. And I told him, I said, now, what's this video I see? It's Dance for Joy you've got back there. He said, these are core basic dance steps that Jews use. If you went to a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah or something, they'd use these dance steps with their different stuff. So I just think anybody in here who may ever have a chance to go to a bar mitzvah owes it to themselves to get one of these tapes, learn to Joel's music how to do these steps, show up as the Goyim, the Gentiles that we are, and show those people at the bar mitzvah we can do the dance. Okay, Um, But uh, these and the other things are available out there. Uh, one last note before we keep going. Early voting starts when, Ron Hickman? Monday. Monday. Uh, don't forget to vote. Um, our early voting starts Monday. Uh, uh, obviously, I don't tell you who or what to vote for, but uh, uh, do exercise your right to vote. Do it intelligently, please. Um, our country depends upon uh, us. I mean, we run the country ideally. Uh, uh, it, that's if we vote and, and vote intelligently. Um, now, with that, we are on to the Minor Prophets. We discussed last week as we started the Minor Prophets, and, and please understand if you're new to the class and just came in because of loud music, we've got lessons that Mark Craver's holding up. Just raise your hand. You can have a lesson for today. You can get past lessons. We've got, uh, we've got Bibles out there for you if you don't have a Bible. We've got like some 15-year-old kids in here. It came to my attention the other day. One or two of them don't have a good study Bible. And grab one. It's, it's for you. It's provided for you. The only requirement, the only payment is you have to use it and, and show up for class periodically so we felt like it worked. Um, second, second thing, we are in the process of going through the Bible. And for the last year, we're not obviously going verse by verse, but what we are doing is we're trying to learn the things about the Bible that make us biblically literate people. So we've started with the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament. Uh, it's the Hebrew Scriptures, and we are going through those. We've made it to the Minor Prophets, and uh, uh, we're clipping those off at about two a week. When we finish those, we'll deal with the Apocrypha, and after we deal with the Apocrypha, we'll go into the New Testament and look at, at these things as we go along. The Minor Prophets are not called Minor because they were of lesser importance. They are not called Minor because they were below 18 when they did the prophesying. They are not called Minor because they worked uh, in the coal mines. They are Minor Prophets in the sense that their prophecy, their, their literary prophets, their writings, are, are short. They're small. If we were good Jews at synagogue uh, 2,000 years ago and we were going to read the Minor Prophets, they would all be on one scroll. All 12 fit onto one scroll. And that's uh, what they are. We um, have two of 12 that we're looking at today. The time period for Hosea and Micah is similar to the time period we had last week for um, Amos. Uh, oh, i got to tell you guys, this is funny. When I'm not up here doing this um, and I'm not trying to chase our five kids and make sure they're all present and accounted for, um, I, I'm a trial lawyer and uh, 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 try lawsuits. And I am a member of the executive directors of of the Texas Trial Lawyers Association. We had our big meeting on Friday. We have once a month. 
And in the process, we've just started a Christian Trial Lawyers Association here in Texas. So I was talking about it, and I told them, I said, you know, and understand here at this meeting, I have a bunch of pagans, I have a couple of Christians, and um, uh, 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 Mark Stanley, uh, who's the treasurer this year, is Jewish, but he doesn't really uh, uh, exercise his, his faith uh, that comes from his heritage. So we have a full panoply of people in the room. I told them, I said, look, I said, uh, you know, here's... One of them asked me, what did you do last Sunday? Because they know I teach Sunday school. I said, well, I taught Amos. I have this room of 25 pagan lawyers and three Christians. And they said, well, what do you mean Amos? What's Amos? And uh, one of them thought it was Amos and Andy. And I said, no, no, no. You know, get, get your brain working here. And I said, uh, Amos is a book in the Old Testament. And I explained what I taught about. I'm here to tell you, nine of them gave me their emails and said, would you email me the lesson? Okay. Um, yeah, to God's glory. Uh, uh, now I've got to go back and edit the lesson so it looks a little better. <laughs> Not my glory. Um, but but uh, Amos was written at a time, it's the same time period that the books we're looking at today, Hosea and Micah. This is a time where Israel's been divided. You've got the northern kingdom and you've got the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom is being ruled out of Samaria. The king is a fellow named Jeroboam II. He's an evil, wicked king in the eyes of God. He promotes worship of idols. He promotes worship of Baal and Ashtera and the other idols and, and pseudo-gods of the age. But he does not promote worship of Yahweh. He does not promote worship of Jehovah God. It is a society and it is a culture where the rich are getting richer. And the poor are getting poorer. The poor are being trampled on while the rich are finding every way possible to steal, connive, scheme, and enrich their own coffers. The middle class is disappearing from Israel. And uh, uh, justice is not found in society. The courts have been bought off. The rich own the courts. The uh, judges have been bought off. The religious leaders have been bought off. And along with the pagan religion came a pagan lifestyle that was rampant. And into this came the voice of prophets. Isaiah is alive at this time. He's in Jerusalem prophesying and doing work in the courts and, and in, in the actual uh, uh, palace area and has Hezekiah as a king who's trying to bring the people's hearts back to God. But in the north country... In Israel, out of the capital of Samaria, nothing good is happening in that way. And so we don't have a court um, a prophet that we read about right now. We have instead Amos and Micah who are walking around the countryside and Hosea who are walking around the countryside trying to tell people what they need to do to change their lives and to bring honor back to God and to save their country. The people don't listen very well. Um, but let's start. Let's start with Hosea. Hosea um, is relatively unknown to us. We don't know anything about Hosea himself outside of what we can glean from the book. Some scholars like to think Hosea was a baker because in Hosea chapter 7, it makes all these baking references. Well, he makes agricultural references too, so he'd just as likely be a farmer. Maybe he's a farmer slash baker. We don't know. Maybe in his former life he was a baker. Maybe he'll be a baker. Never mind. We're, we're not sure what he was, but we do know certain things 
and those we look at. And I want to look at them with reference to these two questions I've put on the overhead. This is self-evaluation time. I want everybody just calm down for a minute. I want you to think. I want to ask you this question. I want, I want you to truly answer this from your heart. Where do you stand with God? Where do you stand with God? Lots of times, my basic stance with God is one where I try to stay so busy in other things I don't have to think about Him. Have you ever done that? Sometimes my stance with God is one where I don't want to think about it because I've got an area of sin in my life that is standing in the way between me and Him, and I just as soon not acknowledge it because if I acknowledge it, I've probably got to do something about it. So I just as soon shut that off into a little room but by shutting it off in a little room, it's kind of standing between me and God. Sometimes I'm actually in front of God and I'm on my face in front of Him because I recognize my sinfulness and how inadequate I am to be with my God. And that's when He picks me up and says, you are adequate because I will make you adequate, not because of your own goodness. I don't know where you are in your walk with God right now, but I want you to answer the question internally. Because it's the most useful thing I think we can offer out of class today. If we look at Hosea, Hosea asks the question of the people of Israel, where are they with God? Hosea does it in a variety of ways. Hosea, the first three chapters, compares Hosea's marriage with the people of God's relation, people with Israel's relationship with their God. We're going to go into this in more detail in a minute. The chapters 4 through 8 in Hosea show the condemnation that God's bringing upon the people. They talk about, Hosea talks about why God is judging the people. What is wrong with the people? What are they doing wrong? How is their disloyalty to God, their spiritual adultery? Okay. If you're not hanging on to it, don't worry. We cover these points in a minute. You don't have to memorize this as we're going along. There's a coming punishment that's then talked about in Hosea. And... Uh, 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 that punishment uh, 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 is followed by an, another analogy of God and His people, an analogy of love and of fatherhood to a son. And it's out of that context Joel's got a song that he'll sing. Let's go first to the marriage of, of Hosea. Hosea had a tough marriage. I was able to get a picture of him. I know this is him because it says O-C up there, O-S-E-E, -E, which is the English transliteration of what Hosea's name would have read like. And uh, Hosea is this gentleman right here. That's his wife. Her name is Gomer. <laughs> Golly. Um, <laughs> Shazam. Um, anyway, uh, Sergeant Carter's back there. No. Uh, this uh, Hosea marries Gomer, and Gomer's got three little kids. One, two, three. This is actually uh, from an etching that was done about 600 years ago. Um, Hosea, you see, kind of separated out from his wife and three kids. And you see uh, the sun shining forth. And you see the city and all that the city represents seems to stand between Hosea and his wife and children. Let me tell you why. Hosea's wife, Gomer, is an adulterous wife. And God tells Hosea to take her as his wife... The Hebrew is unclear whether she was an, um, 
a licentious woman before the marriage or whether she just merely was someone prone to licentiousness and adultery. But Hosea is told to take an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. The unfaithfulness word in the Hebrew there is the same word as the adulterous wife. Um, what it's probably referencing is, is either the children are going to grow up and be the same way. I don't think so. My personal opinion is these are children. We got no clue who the dad is because Gomer is living a life of adultery while she's married to Hosea. Gomer conceives and she gives birth to a child. The first child is named Jezreel. God says to name him Jezreel, which means God scatters. It's also the name of a town where Jehu had annihilated all of Ahab's kin earlier. And, and um, Hosea said, give the child the name Jezreel, God scatters, because God will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel and will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And the people, of course, are scattered. The second child, she gets pregnant again. She gets a child and, and she's told, name the child Lo-Ruhamah. Uh, lo in Hebrew, the, the L that, that starts a word means not. Okay, it's just a negative start of a word. You can tag it onto any word. You can say you're not happy. You can say you're not uh, excited. You can say you're not good. You can say you're not bad. You just add the L, the lo, in front of a Hebrew word. You get not. Okay? Um, um, so lo ruhama means not loved. Would you name your child not loved? Tough name, isn't it? This child was born at a time when God would no longer show love to the house of Israel. Judgment was on its way. These are the last days of the northern kingdom. This is the last generation of the northern kingdom. And uh, uh, the northern kingdom is going to be conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C. And it's going to be dispersed. And so the child, the second child is not loved. Then there's a third child, Lo-Ami. I'll give you a hint. Ami means my people. Not my people. That's what the name means, not my people. And this is because the, the child was born at a time when the Israelites really were not God's people. And God was not their God based on lifestyle. Based on covenant, yes. Based on lifestyle, no. And so these children of unfaithfulness are born to Gomer. Gomer is not a loving wife who's tending to her husband. Gomer is an adulteress who's out philandering all the time and has children of uncertain heritage. Hosea is called into this, and in the midst of explaining this relationship, we hit chapter 2. And chapter 2 is kind of a diversion from the biography of chapter 1. While chapter 1 outlines this story, what chapter 2 does is says, this really is the way Israel has been with God. Israel's been the Gomer in the relationship to God. Israel has been an adulterous people to God. Israel has had spiritual adultery in their relationship with God. What happened is when God called the people of Israel and entered into covenant with them in Mount Sinai, God specifically, uh, if you read the Sinai experience, if you were in this class and you followed us through as we went through it, you'll see that it's laid out like a Hebrew wedding ceremony would have been at the time. Because it was God and His people entering into covenant, a relationship with each other. And it's set out in Exodus when God says at the conclusion of this, I will take you as my own people. 
and I will be your God. And the people said, yes, that is what we want. At the altar of marriage to God, they said, I do. We will worship you and you alone. We'll put no other gods before you. We will follow your laws. We will write them on our heads. We will put on our doorposts who you are. We will hear as Israel that the Lord our God is one God and we'll love Him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. And the people made this covenant with God just as surely as Gomer married Hosea. But instead of living in righteousness before God, the people went out whoring. They went out in adultery. They did not keep faith with God. They traded their faith with God for what felt good or seemed profitable to them. And this happened time after time after time in Israel's history. And God would call them back. And they would go out again. And God would call them back and they would prostitute themselves again. And so this is the interim that we get. It's an understanding in chapter 2 that God's relationship with His people, as Pastor Shook said this morning, it's a relationship of love. Our commitment to God is not supposed to be because of the fear that we're under His thumb. What moves us to, to, to act is our love. And what moves us to love is His love. See, we love because He first loved us. And we do what He says because we love. But the relationship is one of love and always has been. That's the way God set it up. But the people don't honor the love of God. The Israelite people didn't. They were disloyal to God. And disloyalty is equal in Hosea's prophecy to spiritual adultery. God has a place in your heart and mine. God wants to be ruler of your life, but He wants to be ruler of your heart. And if you put anything else in your heart before God, anything else, it's a spiritual adultery. And it's wrong. And it doesn't bring blessing, it brings pain and anguish, and it brings children of unfaithfulness. That's what is bred out of spiritual adultery. And so this point is made in Hosea chapter 2. And then we get to Hosea chapter 3 and it kind of reverts back to the biographical information. But by the time we get there, we find out that Hosea's wife, Gomer, isn't even living at home anymore. She's gone out and in the process of prostituting herself has actually become a slave. She has owned property. God says to Hosea, because you're me in this story, Hosea, because you are God in this story, Hosea, and because Gomer are the people of Israel, even though she has sold herself into slavery, even though she's born these illegitimate children, even though she's humiliated you, I want you to take your money, I want you to go buy her back out of slavery. And when you buy her back out of slavery, you're not buying her to be your slave. You're buying her to come back to be faithful to you. And you explain that to her. Because that's what I, God, am doing for my people. And when my people go out a-whoring, I will buy my people back. And I won't buy them back to be my slaves. 
I'll buy them back to be my beloved and to be faithful to me again, please. It's an incredibly touching story. But it's also a story that's not written to touch us with the marriage. This is not a marriage manual. This is not written to explain biblical approach to adultery. This is written to show us how far-reaching and beyond normal comprehension of humankind is the love of God. It's also written to show us how atrocious our behavior really is. Um, He buys her back for slavery. Now, at this point, Hosea takes kind of a turn. And Hosea, for chapters 4 through 10, talks about condemnation and punishment for the people of Israel because the people are out at this point prostituting themselves. They're not heeding the advice of what Hosea has said so far. They're still trampling upon the poor. There is no social justice. They're still out for themselves. They're still making a mockery of religion. And so Hosea lays it on the line chapter after chapter. He says, look, with you people, there's no faithfulness to God. There's no love. This is not love that you're throwing out there. God doesn't feel the love. The love's not there. There's no acknowledgement of God. You're not only not faithful, you're not only not loving, you don't even act like He exists. There's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery, breaking every boundary. That's what's going on. He continues, The people have a spirit of prostitution and are stubborn as a heifer. I like that. We have stubborn as a mule. They had stubborn as a heifer. You now have two ways. If you're talking to to a Gentile audience, you can say stubborn as a mule. If you're talking to a Jewish audience, you can say stubborn as a heifer. They ought to get it if they read their Hosea. Um, Now, after this period of condemnation, where the people are just chided and, and admonished and told over and over and over, there is a second relationship that's called in by Hosea to try again to explain to the people. This is an analogy of a father and a son. And God in this analogy is the father. And Israel in this analogy is the son. I want you to look at these words. This is uh, uh, not out of the NIV translation, but this is uh, out of chapter 11. And this is the thrust of what's said. And uh, uh, this is the way Joel will sing it for us. When Israel was young, I loved him. From Egypt, I did call him to be my son. For it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim, remember, is another word for for the people. It was one of the the tribes. Um, Ephraim to walk. And I who picked him up in my arms. This is God. You see the father image here. When Israel was young, I loved him. I taught him how to walk. I'd pick him up in my arms. But they didn't know it was I who loved him. With tender cords of love, I'd lead them. I was to them as one who lifts a yoke, who takes a burden off of them. Bending down, I lovingly fed them. I was spooning the food into their mouth. Anybody in here ever had a child? God says, I treated them like you treat your children. I taught them how to walk. I'd pick them up. I'd hold them. If they had something too heavy, I'd help carry it. I'd bend down to feed them to make sure they could eat. How can I lift you up, my son Ephraim? How can I lift up Israel? My heart's overturned. My compassions are kindled. Not again will my anger be burned. And God is saying here to His people that that the people are ignoring Him. 
The people have no place for him. Yet just as a father is for his son, I'm telling you, this was in Jesus' mind. had to be when he told the prodigal son parable. had to be. Just as God, I mean, that's what a son is here. And he says, you know, I will bring you back. And my compassions are kindled, but, but I, this is not eternity. There's a, the Jewish people have a special place in the heart of God. And God calls them back, but he calls all of us back. So Joel will sing this for us out of Hosea. God is faithful, isn't he? He's merciful, full of mercy. Amen. We experience that every day. When Israel was young, how I loved him. From Egypt I did call him to be my son. For it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. And I who picked him up in my arms. Yet they did not know that it was I who loved thee. With tender cords of love I did lead thee For I was to them as one who lifts a yoke And bending down I lovingly fed them Do be up bow do la 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 Do la 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 Do la 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 how can I give you up, my son Ephraim? How can I give you up, Israel? For my heart's overturned, my compassions are kindled. Not again will my anger be burned, be burned. Oh, we. Israel was young, how I loved him. From Egypt I did call him to be my son. For it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. And I who lift him up in my arms. Yet they did not know that it was I who loved him. With tender cords of love I did lead him. For I was to them as one who lifts a yoke. And bending down, I lovingly fed them. To be that bow, do la 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 That's our God. I love the spirit and feel of that song. 
Um, let's go to Micah. Um, he's going to sing out of the microphone in a minute. Okay, Micah, Micah is a contemporary of Amos. Uh, same time period, he's another peasant in the countryside, or at least speaking to, uh, for the peasants in the countryside. A cry for justice is what we have from Micah. Micah, the first three chapters, talk about the judgment again that God is bringing down upon the people. Yahweh is coming, it says in chapter 1, because of Jacob's transgressions, because of what Israel is doing. Yah, uh, Jehovah God will come. Um, these are a people who plot evil on their beds, the prophet said. At morning light, they carry it out simply because it's in their power to do it. These are people who covet fields and seize them. These are people who defraud a man of his home and insurance. And these are people who should know justice, but instead they hate good and they love evil. These aren't good people to be around. This is not the fabric of society that causes civilization to really blossom in the eyes of God. The leaders judge for a bribe. How would you like to, to go into a court system where you felt like the decision was going to be based upon a bribe instead of what's fair and right? The priest... Teach for a price. Now, please understand, we're not talking here about, oh, it's a pastor who does this for his vocation and calling and we meet his needs for his life because of what he's doing. Oh, no. They already got that. That'd be like, this is like Demond coming in and saying, okay, you want to come to church this Sunday? You got to pay at the door. five fifty dollars apiece. Or better yet, it's kind of like this. You want to come to Lewis for counseling. Okay. Well, you come to Lewis, you give him 10 bucks. He's going to tell you you're dead wrong. I bet you give him 50 bucks and he'll say, yeah, go ahead and live that way. It won't hurt. Okay. You not only had him preaching for a price, the prophets are telling fortunes for money. You had Sister Cleo at the temple. Can you imagine coming into a church and having the booth set up? Uh, you come over here for your uh, uh, fortune to be read. Uh, we read palms at this. Oh, you, you, you just want your astrology sign? For, uh, that, that stargazing's over on that side. We're strictly palms and feet over here. Uh, you know, the tea leaves, they're over there. These are the godly people. Um, Micah is asked, or ask this question. You know, this was a, a, I, I do not, when I try cases, only twice in my life have I quoted the Bible at a trial. It's not generally what I do. Um, um, but one of them, uh, I did. I quoted from the book of Micah. It was a case I had where these two fellows had just lied like dogs. They had just absolutely lied because they were trying to get out of their responsibility for hurting my fella. Okay? So I tried the case. I had a Baptist pastor on the, the jury panel. I let him on. Lawyers never let pastors on a jury because we know, A, they're going to be leaders, and B, we got no, side which, no idea which side they're going to vote on. So we don't ever want to let them on there. You only let leaders on if you know which way they're going. That's the rule we're taught. Well, this is down in Wharton, Texas, Lewis's hometown. I've got the pastor of like the El Campo 
Baptist church. And I'm up there picking the jury. And I said, do you ever get put on a jury? He said, no, they won't let me on. I said, you know why? He said, no. And I told him. And I said, I want to ask you a couple questions. I may let you on this jury. And he said, well, ask away. I said, what's your favorite sermon? He said, the love of God. I said, do you believe in right and wrong? He said, yes. I said, is right good? He said, yes. I said, is wrong bad? He said, yes. I said, you're fine by me. <laughs> so I let him on the jury. The other side was afraid to strike him at that point because everybody else on the jury knew I was letting him on there. If they struck him, then they don't want some guy who believes in right and wrong. Um, <laughs> look, look, would have looked bad on them. So I get him on there. And I thought, you know, this is the one time I can quote the Bible. So I get up for closing argument. And I said to him, I said, uh, uh, may it please the court. Judge Sklar said, begin, Mark. So I looked at the jury and I said, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard the phrase preaching to the choir. This is my chance to preach to the preacher. Because they all knew who he was. And they all kind of laughed. And he sat, you know, in the middle and he kind of laughed. And I said, and the text for my sermon comes from the Old Testament prophet Micah, the sixth chapter, the eighth verse, where the prophet asked this question, what, I mean, this, this is a lawsuit, man, all right, this, this is happening in a courtroom. And then the prophet asked the question, what does the Lord require of you? And then he answers it, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you're here to do justice. That's what you're about. That's what the Lord requires of you. It's what the law requires of you. And you do justice in this case, and it's the biggest act of mercy you can do for these two 24- and 26-year-old fellows over here because they'll learn in their 20s they can't lie and get out of responsibility. And they should have learned it when they were grade school. But let's at least teach them now. And I said, now why do I say justice is this? And I launched in my closing argument. Well, bless his heart, the lawyer who is the defense attorney... I think he just thought that I'd probably give this same closing argument every trial. I've probably never read the Bible. I'm just some schmuck lawyer who gets up there and has memorized this passage because I thought it was really cute and it really works well in a closing argument. So he's going to outfox me. That's bad. My undergraduate degree is in cute. Okay, don't try and out-cute me in a courtroom. Uh, I out-cute any of these lawyers, okay? So he stands up there and he says, this is the way he starts out. He takes his glasses off to look professorial. And he starts walking and he says, I am appalled that Mr. Lanier would bring the Bible into the courtroom. I'm especially appalled that he would do it wrongly because Mr. Lanier has not quoted the right scripture in this case. I'm sitting there thinking, Oh, baby, would you please fight on my ground, okay? I just spent half my life memorizing this book, okay? Come on, bring it on. So I'm feeling like this guy's headed for trouble. So I cover my mouth up because I can't stop smiling. I look over at the Baptist pastor. He kind of winks at me. I kind of wink back. That's not true on the wink, but we're, 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 we're looking at it. He's, he's, so he's kind of like me. He's wondering where this is going because that's a pretty good passage for what we're doing here. So... uh the guy says, the defense lawyer says, the uh, proper passage of Scripture for this trial comes from the uh, writings of the Apostle John. 
John wrote a book called 1 Corinthians. So, I'm sorry. So I stood up and said, Objection, Your Honor. The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, not the Apostle John. And the judge is sitting there thinking, Judge Scalar leans forward and says, I'm going to have to sustain that objection. It was the Apostle Paul. The Baptist preacher on the jury panel, he just falls out of his chair laughing. Bless his heart, this little defense lawyer who was going to out-Bible me um, needs to start going to our class. He, uh, he missed it. And he, he never quite got his train back on the track for that closing argument. Um, this stuff comes in handy. But what does the Lord require of you? This is what Micah is saying. And the problem is the people aren't doing it. And so the, the people have got judgment coming. And the judgment is going to rain down on them. But the judgment will not last forever. Because it's in Micah that we have the promise of hope. And the prophecy is given that in the last days, as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, for you who are little among Judah, Bethlehem was like a flick in the road. It was not a big town. You who are little among Judah, from you shall he come. Come forth to me who is to be ruler in Israel. The refrain's not in there. The idea is in there. Um, but let's skip the refrain to stay on the passage for a minute. In latter days will the Lord's house be established. Nations will flow unto him. Then will they say, let us go to God's mountain and there he will teach us his marvelous ways. They'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. They shall not learn to make war anymore. This is the passage that the scholars of Israel had when Herod said to them, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? They didn't have to go back and study. They didn't say, give us five days, we'll answer. They were able to answer off the top of their head because they knew their prophets. Bethlehem. But for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, from you shall come one who will be ruler. And this is the promised hope because what God did with Israel and what God does with us, the spiritual Israel who aren't Jewish, is God says, you, your sin drives you away. God has no choice with your sin but to see you drawn away. But the whole purpose is to bring you back into fellowship of love because it's a love relationship He's after. And even as He's dispensing His justice and His judgment upon the people, He's doing it with the mercy of what will be coming next. Messiah. Restoration. Fellowship. And love. I've got points for home, but first let Joel sing from this, please. Yes, and the good news is, one of the good news is that God is pouring out His Spirit upon Israel again. Right now, in your day and in your time, we are seeing literally hundreds of thousands. It's probably into the millions now, into the low millions. But millions of our people are finding the Messiah in a personal fellowship with the God of with the God of Israel. This is the restoration that is talked about in both of these passages. And it is a sign that the Messiah is coming back soon. These things were to take place right before 
the coming of the Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, the second coming. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, Though you are little among Judah From you shall he come Come forth to me Who is to be ruler in Israel And his name shall be called Wonderful And his name shall be called Mighty God and he shall rule all nations, for he shall be our peace. In latter days will the Lord's house be established. Nations will flow unto it. Then will they say, let us go to God's mountain. And there he will teach us his marvelous ways, and his name shall be called Wonderful, and his name shall be called Mighty God, and he shall rule all nations, for he shall be our peace. Then they will beat their swords into plowshares spears into pruning hooks. No more shall nation lift sword against nation. They shall not learn to make war anymore. And his name shall be called Wonderful. And his name shall be called Mighty God. And he shall rule all nations, for he shall be our peace. For he shall rule all nations, for he shall be our That insert, the refrain comes from Isaiah, who was a contemporary prophet at the time. Now, points for home before you leave. Focus with me for just a minute back on our original question. Where are you in your relationship with God? Okay. What is your relationship with Him right now? What stands between you? I don't know what it is for you. I know the things for me. And I want us to pray because I want us to take these points home. But I want us to pray specifically about this. 
So everyone who needs prayer in this area and needs to focus in this area, I'm going to ask you to stand up. That should be all of us, by the way. Uh, and if not standing up physically, at least in your heart, okay? Our points for home we're praying about, first of all, Hosea is not a marriage manual. Second, God is faithful, okay? God is faithful, and we should honor him. He's not mocked. He's not fooled by what we're about and what we're doing. But he is compassionate, and he is forgiving, and he's given us our Messiah in love. God, we pray to you right now that you will draw each one of us beyond the the barriers of sin, beyond the barriers of ignorance, beyond the barriers of busyness, beyond the barriers of disinterest, beyond the barriers of a hardened and callous heart, beyond the barriers of pride, beyond the barriers of unfaithfulness, beyond the barriers of, of... misgivings, beyond the barriers of fear, whatever the barriers are, Lord, that stand between us and you, we pray that Jesus, our Messiah, will help through your Holy Spirit those barriers be dissolved. That each one of us, Lord, will find closer walk with you. And give us, Lord, the wisdom not to let barriers stand between the way, but to move them aside. And to fall on our face before you and accept the forgiveness that you've given us and the restored fellowship. Lord, the love you have for us is beyond measure, but when we even get a glimpse, it changes who we are, and I pray that you'll give us that glimpse and that our love for you will return. Through Jesus, amen.